Good morning. I'm Julie Brunk. I'm the pastor's wife. And uh, I just want to thank you all for praying for Curtis. It's, it's been a rough weekend, but um, God has met him, and he's going to continue to meet him, and he's going to be healed in the name of Jesus. So this morning, I am excited to introduce um, a friend of ours who came to the rescue as Curtis wasn't doing well. Um, and it was clear Saturday morning he wasn't going to be here. So this man is John Bangs, and he's a very dear friend of ours. And I'm just going to read you really quick a little bio about his background. And um, so he had pastoring roles at Westminster Chapel in Bellevue for six years and then pioneered a four-square church in Redmond. We used to be in Redmond, and so we had the, our, the blessing to uh, rub shoulder sh to shoulder with Teresa and he. He now serves as a professor of ministry at Northwest University and at Fuller Seminary Northwest. John earned a Master's of Divinity degree at Fuller and a Doctor of Ministry degree at George Fox University, which I thought it was fun because there's different people that have connections with all these different universities, and I love that. Teresa, his wife, and he have been married 27 years, and they have eight incredible children. Glory to God. Woohoo! <laughs> That is a great intro. <laughs> that is a great intro to who he married, one of my favorite people in the whole world. <laughs> Teresa Bangs is so much fun, and we've had such a great time as couples ministering through the years together. Um, she is so fun and is definitely an add-in to who John is. But um, John Bangs is just somebody who has a heart for emerging leaders, and he we have gotten to be shoulder to shoulder with them, and he is a very good friend of my husband's, and I appreciate so much their um, walking together and encouraging emerging leaders. And so we, I just love this man, and I'm so honored and blessed to have he and his family. So Dr. John Bangs. <laughs> Thanks, <Julie. Thank> you. <laughs> this is the most hospitable church that I have ever encountered in all of my days. <laughs> and it's amazing. I walked in this morning and, you know, I mean, usually I have to put my own microphone on when I speak. You know, it's, it's a lot of work and it's really a pain. But here, you know, um, somebody in the back is, okay, let me just feed this down the back of your sweater, you know, put this on the right side of your belt and clip it on, just screw it in, you know. <laughs> Stand over here now. And, <laughs> you know, so I've, I've just been so amazingly served and loved since I arrived here this morning. It's incredible. And then, you know, do you want, would you like some? Um, would you like some breakfast? And, you know, I, most places I have to eat before I come, if you can imagine that. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing. Wow. Well, so because, I, want, because I, I, I really want Justine to be correct um, in her assertion that it's easier to speak in Thai than English, I'm going to do my sermon in Thai this morning. So <laughs> I'm waiting for like a gift from God in order to deliver it. And I'm really hoping that God will give you the gift to be able to understand it. You know, I'm kind of a risk taker that way, so I thought that was important. Um, that I, you know, be open to God's presence in, in, the, in the morning. And I'm also going to say dude a lot. So, see, you guys will feel right at home that way with me. So, so I could say that I feel for Pastor Kurt this morning, but I, honestly, I can't open myself up to that much potential pain. 
you know, I do have a little bit of empathy, but, you know, I don't know if I have enough empathy to be willing to be feel for somebody who's passing a kidney stone. So, um, but uh, it's my, it's my, my privilege and, and blessing to be able to be here this morning. Instead of my wife, actually, this morning, I decided to bring my girlfriend, my girlfriend, Teresa, over here. <laughs> You know, because it's so boring to, you know, just bring your wife all the time. So I just brought my girlfriend who, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate that she also happens to be my wife. Um, so that way I can remain in ministry and uh, <laughs> so and all that kind of thing. So anyway, well, so the passage that I'm going to speak to you about this morning comes from John 21 and it's a fishing story. It's a fishing story. So um, it made me think about fishing stories, and so I wanted to start out by telling you some fishing stories. Um, when I was a young boy, my, my, uh, my grandfather lived at Nia Bay, Washington, which is in the far northwest corner of the state, uh, Macaw Indian Reservation, and uh, he ran a little fishing tackle store. And he was a grumpy, a grumpy old man that lived in a trailer, and my, my times going up there with him were, were generally... Um, the kind of things where, you know, mom said, you need to go spend some time with grandpa. Um, and so I'd go there, and I'd just, after about two days of being there, I'd be, mom, can I come home? <laughs> so I, I don't mean to be dishonoring to my poor grandfather. He was a wonderful man. And I had some great experiences. Like, for instance, if I wouldn't have gone up there to spend time with my grandfather, I would have never learned how to cut the head off a herring um, in just exactly that double angle, because you have to do the angle both ways, that when you troll it behind a fishing boat, it will squiggle through the water just like it's alive, right? So see, my grandfather has passed on a heritage to me that I have never passed on to anybody else. But. <laughs> <laughs> so one day, you know, when I went up there in order to get rid of me, he sent me out on a charter boat with one of his buddies that ran a charter boat, you know? And uh, so um, I went out on the charter boat and I caught three great big salmon. You know, they were, they were about like that long and I was so excited to come back to the dock and I got back to the dock and my grandfather was like, you weren't supposed to let him catch anything because <laughs> he had to pay for whatever I caught, you know. <laughs> you know, you have to pay by the pound if you send your kid out on the fishing boat. So, so needless to say, my experiences of fishing have, you know, been sort of uh, checkered and jaded a little bit as I've, been, as I've uh, grown up fishing. I do have some, some great memories of fish. Now, most of them don't involve catching any fish. They just involve fishing for fish. Because I was thinking this morning about fishing and how... You know, we go out in the middle of the ocean and we drop this like one piece of bait down on a line out in the middle of this vast expanse of water and we expect to catch a fish. Now, that's, a, that's a pretty amazing thing. I, I, I decided that one of the reasons why I don't, haven't fished as much or maybe enjoyed fishing as much as, as some people do, you know, I don't have a bumper sticker that says, you know, um, an hour fishing is better than a day working. I don't have one of those. Um, because it's like there's got to be a more efficient way to do this right? <laughs> like I could troll between two boats with a great big giant net and I could catch thousands of fish all at once, right? But no, I'm sitting out here in a boat with a line going, well, I hope fish, you know, it's only been eight hours, you know? <laughs> I'm pretty sure one of these moments I'm going to actually catch something, but yeah. <laughs> but um, I, one thing I do remember is my, we would leave from Nia Bay on my uncle's boat and we'd go, we, we had discovered this place that we called Seagull Cove. I don't think that's actually what it was called, but it was this kind of clear cove carved in the rocks and you could, you could lay on the deck of his boat and look down through like 25 feet of water depth um, and you could see at the bottom these lingcod, 
you know, swimming around uh, among the rocks. You know, and it was just such a beautiful thing. And, the, and in that case, you actually could like put a little chunk of meat or something on the end of a of a hook with, without even a pole, and you could just you know I'd, we'd lower it down off of the bow of the boat, and you you know kind of noodle it around in front of them because you could see them, and bam, they would bite, and you you know it wasn't very easy on your hands to pull them up, but but that's that was that was really a fun thing to do. And I remember going fishing with my son Britton um, in the Tolt River, casting lines and you know trying to catch trout. Trout have always evaded me completely. I, I believe I have never caught a trout um, that was big enough to keep, you know, because we caught trout that day fishing in the Tolt River, and some of them were three inches long, <laughs> if you can believe it, you know. They were, they were, they were as big as that, as big as, as three inches long, you know. And uh, so one day, I, Britton and I were going fishing. We lived out at Lake Marcel, which, you know, Lake Marcel, they stock it with trout, right? They put like 25,000 trout, you know, in the lake um, every year, and I never caught one of them <laughs> the whole time I lived there. You could stand on the dock, our dock, you know, where we lived, um, and you could actually, on, on the right summer day, you could see fish just, you know, jumping out of the water, and a lot of them were bass, you know, so we'd cast out off the dock, and we'd catch bass, and some of them were as big as four inches. Some of them were, really, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you could never eat any of them. So, you know, one day I thought this was a problem. We need to, we need to do better at this fishing thing. And so Britt and I went to the True Value, Value Hardware uh, in Duval, and we said, you know, we live at Lake Marcel, and we can't catch any fish. You know, how do you catch fish at Lake Marcel? Surely you must know. You know, they have a big fishing tackle section, you know. And so he said, here's the lure you need. And it was this J-shaped lure that was painted red and white and, you know, cost like a buck 29. So we bought the buck 29 lure from True Value, and we took it out, and Britt and I were out, uh, out fishing in the lake, and, you know, we cast, and sure enough, you could catch fish with this lure, and some of them were as long as four inches, you know, <laughs> you know, so we were casting and catching and throwing back and casting and catching and throwing back, you know, and so I made the comment to Britt, and I said, well, this is a great lure if what you want to catch is minnows, and right then, he cast out by the, the lily pads in the last catch, and bam, a real bass, you know, hit our lure. We actually caught a real bass, if you can imagine it. Um, you know, so he reels it in, and it's and it's uh, and it's it was like it was a three-pound bass, which you know we've seen bass as big as seven pounds get caught out of Lake Marcel, which is part part of why we felt bad. You know, why do other people catch seven-pound bass in Lake Marcel, and we just catch minnows? So you know, now one thing when you've grown up all your life not catching fish, fishing, but not catching fish and you actually catch one, well, then what do you do, right? <laughs> you know, we've got this fish flopping around on the boat. It's like, wow, we actually caught a fish. What do we do now, you know? So, you know, we had brought some sort of little, you know, we, I was, you know, hitting the bass on the head with the back of my fishing knife, you know, trying to get to stop flopping so it wouldn't flop out of the boat, you know? And, you know, we had it almost dead, and we brought it in the house, and we were ready to cook it, you know, and, and my, uh, my girlfriend over here, Teresa, um, she was like, don't, she was like, don't kill it, don't kill it, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what do you mean don't kill it, you know, we just finally fa caught a fish after all our life trying to catch something, and you don't want us to kill the thing, you know, it wants to live, wants to live you know, and uh, so I was, I was like, I was paralyzed, I didn't know what in the heck to do now, you know, sorry I said heck, you know, in some of your families that's probably a swear word, I don't mean to swear in the pulpit, but anyway, we, uh, so, so Britton and I, we, okay, with, okay, we're going to go 
you know, let it back out in the water. But of course, you know, we'd already beat it over the head with the back of our fishing knife, you know, so it was not to, so we attempted to let it go and it kind of tried to swim off and it, then it sort of tailed up and floated to the top, you know. So we, um, we actually did end up cooking and eating our bass, you know, which uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Lake Marcel. I know actually one of the members of your congregation bought that house from us, so maybe some of you have. Um, but uh, the, uh, the bass from Lake Marcel, it sort of tastes like Lake Marcel which sort of tastes like a little swampy, you know, so, but anyway, that, that was our big success as a fishing story um, in our lives, you know, um, so yesterday we went over to my daughter's house, who has three little baby, not baby children, but baby chickens, you know, I started to tell one of our friends here that, that we went to visit my daughter's baby, and she thought I was going to say, baby, but our daughter doesn't have a baby, just chickens, you know. And so, um, and Jane started tell, talking about, you know, how do you, how do you clean a chicken? And she didn't mean give it a bath, you know, because <laughs> she's got a little experience with that in her, uh, in her younger days. So maybe someday we'll have chickens and then we'll have to learn how to cook them too. I don't know. Probably, probably not. They want to live. Yeah, they do. They want to live for sure. But uh, so as fun as all these stories are, you know, full of, you know, life and good, good memories and laughter and all of that kind of thing. The fishing story I'm going to read for you uh, in a moment here out of John 21 um, is not quite one of those. It's not one of those stories that's, that's characterized by, um, by um, being a, 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 a journey away from what you have to do, right? Because for, for me, like going fishing is a journey away from what I have to do. Um, but for Jesus' disciples, going fishing was a return to what they had to do, right? It was a return to the responsibilities of daily life. And, um, you know, I, I, am, I am so blessed to be able to serve at Northwest University teaching, you know, Bible and theology and ministry classes. What a cool, you know, what a cool thing that is to do. But you know what? Sometimes, um, sometimes just like your jobs, right? Sometimes, and just like the, your schools and just like your life, Sometimes it turns into what you have to do, right? And sometimes it's not easy to find God in the midst of even teaching Bible classes at a Christian university, right? Just like, you know, I, I remember when I first went into ministry, I thought, now my life is always just going to be full of, you know, God and his presence. And you know what? It turns out that I have to grade papers, right? <laughs> I told one of my students the other day, you know, one of my pastors used to always quote the, the passage from Chariots of Fire um, that said, uh, it says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Do you know that? Do you remember that line? You know, it's kind of a great and grand line from that movie. I had a uh, student who was complaining about the way that I graded her paper, and I said, God made me anal, and when I correct your English, I feel his pleasure. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> he did. God made me anal, I have to admit it, you know. Um, but sometimes I don't feel as pleasure when I'm grading papers, especially, you know, there's a stack of 25, you know, first week uh, Old Testament papers, and they're all exactly the same, except for, <laughs> right, they're all exactly the same. And so I was having one of those days the other day where I was sitting at my desk listening to the fluorescent lights buzz and, you know, going, oh man, one more of these, oh man, one more of these, oh man, one more of these, and life started to feel mundane. Does that ever feel that way for you? Do you ever feel like the kind of mundane rhythms of life? Um, and so I want to, that's what I want to talk to you about today is, you know, how do, we, um, how do we find Christ in the midst of our mundane lives, right? Because we, we all have got them, 
right? There's a book out on the bookshelves in the Christian bookstore called No Time for the Ordinary. Um, and uh, that author, I'm sure it's a great author, it's probably a great book and everything, but you know what? That's mostly what we have time for when it comes right down to it, right? I mean, things become ordinary, right? Even if you're a missionary in Thailand, right? Things might become a little ordinary sometimes. And uh, it's, it's true that, that life becomes ordinary. And so what do we do about that? You know, and one of the temptations is to want to just escape to the mountain, right, and be with God all the time. But, um, but I, I'd like to have you read with me this uh, um, piece that's coming up here, okay? It says this. It says, The life of faith is not lived by a constant dwelling on the mountain with God. I don't hear you. You're supposed to be reading this with me. You guys talking? Are you talking? All right, let's do it with me this time, okay? The life of faith is not lived by a constant dwelling on the mountain with God, away from the rush of daily activity, but by bringing something of the mountain down into the valley, into the river, into the flow of life. Into the flow of life, right? Do you agree with that statement? I think it's true. Um, so, because I know um, the, the malaise and boredom that can sometimes strike uh, all of your lives, right? The malaise and the boredom that can sometimes strike all of your lives. I know that school sometimes, if you're a student, it's predictable, right? It's the same thing from day to day. History is boring. You know, boy, was Miss Hoffrichter, my high school history teacher, boring. I woke up every day at the end of that class, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, math is hard. Um, sometimes when we're in school, in that stage of life, our friendships um, bring out our insecurities, don't they? They bring out our insecurities and we feel insecure. Um, sometimes our work life stretches on year after year without a whole lot of variation, right? One day upon day, for me, semester upon semester, for you, uh, sales project after sales project, customer after customer, and, and they start to kind of blur together. Um, before we're married, sometimes... Dating can be disappointing and confusing, right? And we, sometimes we wonder why we bother. After we're married, sometimes our relationships get predictable, both the good parts and the bad parts, right? We go to the same restaurants. We fight the same fights. We hold the same old resentments. That's, of course, true of all of you, but not with me and my girlfriend. So that's why she's my girlfriend. I have a professor who told me in one of our classes, he says, I don't work on our marriage. My wife and I decided that we don't work on our marriage anymore. We play at it. So I think I thought that was kind of interesting advice that he gave. So um, parenting is hard. Parents, hard, right? Parenting is hard. When the kids are little, we chase them all over the place, right? We're, you know, changing diapers, trying to figure out why they won't stop crying, patting their backs to burp them, and, they, you know, trying to figure out why that is. When they start to grow up, then the complexity of their problems strains the wisdom that we can find. Have you ever found that, right? It's, you know, how do we, what do we do, you know? And it's, a, it's hard. Um, and, you know, then I thought about sports and hobbies and friends, but sometimes we don't even have time for sports and hobbies and friends because we're too busy, right, with the routine of life. Um, and so I know that maybe you've felt this, but you know what else I know? I know that God knows that we deal with feelings like these, right? And I know that he can breathe life into our mundane world and our mundane activities that make up the majority of our human existence because it's true that that's the case. So I want to pay attention to God's word today and see how it might inform us on this. You know what I loved about the part of your service before I got up here to speak? 
And Justine got up and she said, I have an announcement. And then she pulled out her Bible <laughs> and she read from the Bible. And you know what? Um, I have an announcement too. I do. I have an announcement. This is an announcement, right? This, you know, really that's what preaching is when we start, talk about the gospel and the good news about Christ. We announce uh, the good news about Christ. And so what I want to announce today is that Christ can break into our routines and bring life, breathe life and breath into our routines, you know. And so, when, you know what? Another thing I want to announce to you is that when I preach to you about these things, I don't preach as a finished product who's got all of this stuff down. Um, I preach to myself while I'm preaching to you too, right? That, uh, you know, I'm a guy who has to struggle through the rhythms of life also and seeks to find Christ in the midst of them. So, so let's read together John chapter 21, 1 through 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So this is afterward. When it says afterward, it means after Christ has died on the cross, risen from the dead. They've encountered him two other times. Um, so Jesus appears again. This is the incarnate, not yet risen to, you know, to the right hand of the Father, still among his people before the ascension. Jesus appears again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Now, all the events, of course, of the crucifixion and all of that took place where? You remember? In Jerusalem, right? In Jerusalem. So now they're back to the north. They've gone back home um, there uh, by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others were together. Two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that, that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Now, I think this is a lousy translation. Is it okay if I say that? Lousy translation. They're 100 yards out in the water, right? He, um, Jesus is, you know, I don't think he's going to come to them with a British accent and politely ask them, right? I think what he said is, any fish, guys? Right? Because, you know, how do you communicate to somebody who's 100, 100 yards out on the Sea of Galilee? You know, it's not quite, friends, haven't you any fish? <laughs> I don't think it's quite the way it was. No, they answered. They were a lot like me, right? They went fishing. They didn't catch anything. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Actually, like this. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Right? Kind of like that. Right? Because they're 100 yards away out on the water. You know, and, and people ask, well, why didn't they recognize him? Well, they were out on the water and he was 100 yards away and he was standing there and he died the other day. Right? I mean, just <laughs> some minor little things <laughs> that might make it difficult to, you know, to get in here. So... When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he did what any of us would do when they were about to jump off a boat and swim to shore. Um, he put his coat on. Um, <laughs> he wrapped his outer garments around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. 
The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. Imagine what that would have cost my grandfather, right? <laughs> he would have been really putting out the dough. Uh, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And I'd like to have you say that with me this morning. Come and have breakfast. And I want to ask, even challenge you to hear that as you speak it one more time with me as coming from the mouth of Jesus and not from the hospitality crew in the back, right, who said that very thing to me this morning. Um, say it. Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now I've got my notes all cattywampus. You're not even supposed to know that I have notes, you know, according to Andy Stanley. <laughs> Ooh. Um, so, you know, it's, so let, me, let me talk to you a little bit about this text, because um, I have to, because I'm anal, and I'm a professor, and that's what I do. Um, so note that um, uh, it's popular to preach this passage as if the disciples have done something wrong by going fishing, right? You will recall, you know, Jesus' instruction to them that they're to be fishers of men, and they've abandoned, you know, they'll say they've abandoned the mission, they've given up hope, um, and, you know, and they're just, you know, going back to their daily work. And then the idea is that, you know, we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to go back to our daily work. Um, but I don't think that's what this passage is about, really. Note that Jesus never rebukes them, right? He doesn't rebuke them. He's, he doesn't say, what are you guys doing out here fishing, for heaven's sakes? That's not what he does. He doesn't rebuke them. Um, instead, he enters in to their activity, uh, infusing their routine activity with the sacred presence of God, right? Suddenly, um, they've gone back to their routine, and, and Jesus, he doesn't say, stop going back to your routine, but instead, he walks into their routine, right? He walks into the routine, and, he, and he's present in the midst of their mundane daily activities instead, right? It's a passage about Christ's desire to enter into your mundane routine to enliven it, and to transform it into a holy act of worship to God. Do you know that your work can be a holy act of worship to God? Whether it's swinging a hammer, um, whether it's calling customers on the telephone, whether it's programming computers, whether it's taking care of small children, um, whatever it might be, right? That, that Jesus can transform your work into a holy act of worship to God. Even if you're a Bible professor at a Christian university, it's even possible then. Amazing. <laughs> so uh, note that the passage is bookended both in verses 1 and 14 with the assertion that Jesus revealed himself to them. And this, is, this phrase only appears one other time in the New Testament, and it's at the end of Luke on the road to Emmaus, when, again, they're surprised to find that the one walking with them along the road turns out to be Jesus. So Jesus revealed himself to them in the midst of what just, it just seemed like a buddy from the shore shouting a suggestion about where they might cast their fish, right? Cast their nets in order to catch the fish. Um, they didn't know it was Jesus. But he, then he opened up their eyes of their heart 
in the middle of their routine activity and suddenly he was there, right? Suddenly he was there. Um, so note that when he gave them those instructions, they didn't know it was Jesus, right? Because some you know, sometimes you'll also hear this passage preached as obedience. When you hear Jesus call, obey. But they heard Jesus call and they thought it was Steve, right? <laughs> they didn't know it was Jesus and they obeyed anyway. I mean, it's like, oh, well, you know, we're not catching anything. Steve says there might be fish on the right side of the boat. So let's try that. Right? And it, it was, they, they realized it was Jesus when suddenly the miraculous broke into the daily. Right? It wasn't before. It was when the miraculous broke into the daily that they realized that it was Jesus. Um, so um, in verse 7, um, uh, note that, that Jesus' advice, yeah, that's what, that's what I just said, turned out to be amazing, amazingly uh, accurate. And then they find Jesus cooking up fish on a charcoal fire. And note that he invites them to bring some of their fish in and to mingle it with his. Right? Bring some of your own fish in and mingle it with his. And as they do, the whole event is transformed into something like a communion meal. You notice that it starts to sound like communion at the end of this verse when he takes and he gives them the bread and then he, takes, then he gives them the cup, I mean the fish, right? But the rhythm of it sounds very much like the words of institution for the communion meal. So suddenly their daily turns into an act of communion. Um, and the word that's used for fish in this whole passage, the Greek word, um, it speaks of something that makes, it, it doesn't actually speak, it's not the usual word that's, that's, that's you know, zoologically intended to indicate creatures that swim in the water. It's the, it's the word that's used for fish as food, right? So have you ever seen Finding Nemo? where the sharks in their temptation meeting, and they have to recite, fish are friends, not food, right? <laughs> fish are friends, not food. Well, this is the opposite of that, right? Fish is food, it's not your friend. So remember that, my girlfriend there in the second row. But uh, <laughs> Next, if I ever catch another fish again, yeah. Yeah, if it's a pretty big if, isn't it? Yeah, it is a very big if. But so this, is, this word for fish means something that makes an ordinary bland meal substantive, nourishing, and tasty. Something that makes an ordinary bland meal substantive, nourishing, and tasty. Right? And so when they take that and they mingle it with what Jesus has already uh, cooking on the barbecue, so that you know, I'm sure that they could smell the, the wafting scent of cooking fish, which smells good unlike uncooking fish. Um, and then he says to them, come and have breakfast. So, um, so uh, say with me again this phrase that I had you say earlier. I think it's going to, look, there it is, okay? The life of faith is not lived by a constant dwelling with mountain with God, away from the rush of daily activity, but by something of the mountain down into the valley, into the river, into the flow of daily life. So here are some of the things that happens when we don't do this. I know, from, I know from experience these things. We strive for achievement, worldly recognition, and reward, thinking that we're going to get satisfaction out of those things. We become frustrated with the ordinary. We become bored with routine activities. Um, we start to have a sense of meaningless repetition in our lives. Our work becomes less fruitful than it could otherwise be. Right? Notice that when Jesus entered into their life is when suddenly they found their work becoming fruitful. And I do believe that Jesus can do exactly that to us in our work. He can make our work more fruitful. Um, cynicism creeps in. We lose our sense of hope. 
We might make unwise decisions um, because we're trying to fix this thing, right? We initiate rash changes that lead to long-term harm, right? Because we were, were desperate to breathe some life into our lives. What happens when we do? What happens when we do? We're empowered to give ourselves, our tasks, our time to God and to others. We gain the ability to recognize and to live by good and godly priorities. We make decisions informed by God and by God's spirit, right? I, um, I used to help lead worship, play bass guitar. Um, I was the international bass player for for a glow ministries and i could tell you some stories i'll tell you out of that experience <laughs> traveled to all these conventions and all of that but the the, the woman who led worship her name was uh, for that group her name was ruth collingridge and the way that she would recruit her worship teams to go with her uh, she didn't go out and find the very best skilled players she could find anywhere although she did find some amazingly skilled players but she would take anybody that she thought might be a good match with um, she would take their names with her into her prayer closet, and she would pray. And, and she, would, she would never invite anybody to become part of her worship team unless, you know, God said to her, that she felt a resonance in her heart that that was the right, uh, that that was the right person to be on the team. Because I remember saying, hey, you could bring my friend Joe. He's a fabulous guitar player. And she'd go pray, and she'd say, I, don't, I just don't feel like that's what God has in mind. You know? And so she would pray, pray through it. And, and it became a ministry that touched lives um, uh, that joined the team because of the way that she prayed through. Right? So we gain the ability, we, we make decisions informed by God and God's Spirit. We find hope not in the accomplishment of goals, but in the magic of God's presence in the ordinary flow of life. We experience a conscious and purposeful sense of abiding in God's presence. And we receive comfort even in the midst of turmoil and failure. Even in the midst of turmoil and failure. Because you know what? Um, being guided by God does not always result in glorious success. Has anybody ever noticed that? <laughs> it doesn't always result in glorious success. Um, because sometimes God does lead us into apparent failure. And sometimes God does lead us into, into difficulty. And, and, um, and so then we have to ask, how can we find God in the midst of that? Uh, I remember I was working one time for my brother-in-law, uh, selling, selling uh, storage equipment, mostly to Boeing, um, which was a real honor. It meant that I had been really successful at it, that I was given this account with Boeing. Um, and so I was spending all my time. And then suddenly, Boeing hit this hiccup in the road, um, and they laid off 30,000 people uh, in the Northwest. And so the systems that I sold were designed to save space. So I'd call and I'd say, you know, this is John Bangs. I work for Space Saver Storage you know, Systems, and I'd like to help you find a way to, to save space, to make room for whatever you need. And people started laughing. It was like, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here in this. There's like a, there's a, I'm sitting in a room that was designed to hold 12 workers, and there's three desks with people at them, and the rest of it is just empty space. The last thing I need is space. And so I, you know, I came home one day, and I was all discouraged, um, and uh, Teresa looked at me in my discouragement, and she said, um, I just see the Shekinah glory of God in the room around you. Um, and, you know, it, it actually turned out to be that God was, that was the first step of God leading me into full-time ministry, uh, which for me seems like a great success. I'm not sure if it seems like a success to everybody, but it was 
It felt like a, you know, it, it, it turned out that in the midst of that apparent failure, God was present and was using it for his purposes. Um, and so uh, can we find Christ in the midst of apparent failure? Boy, that's important, isn't it? So now comes the hard part of the sermon. How do we accomplish this, right? <laughs> How do we accomplish this? And um, so there's, there's a few really basic things. Um, one of them is this, be purposeful in opening yourself up to the Spirit. You know, one part of it is, how do you, how do you find something? Well, you look for it, right? <laughs> how do you find something? You look for it. And so be purposeful in opening yourself up to the Spirit. You know, if you find yourself feeling that things have gotten routine and mundane, um, pray, ask God, open your heart up, um, right? Open your heart up and look, look for Him. Listen for Christ's invitation in the midst of the daily routine and respond to it. Periodically look up from your work and lock eyes with Jesus, right? Periodically look up from your work and lock eyes with Jesus. Uh, dedicate the motions of your work to the Lord. Uh, you guys have seen the Karate Kid, the early Karate Kid movies with a, you know, he's learning karate and it's like wax on, wax off, right? Wax on, wax off. He's dedicating the, well, in that case, he's dedicating the motion of his work to learning karate, which isn't quite the same thing as the kingdom of heaven, I realize, but it works, right? Does it work? An illustration, it works. Um, so make your work into a prayer. Find Christ in the faces of your family and your friends and your co-workers and your patients, right? Have you ever, you guys ever heard the famous quote from Mother Teresa when she was being interviewed and people, uh, the interviewer asked her, you know, how do you continue your work you know, working with orphans on the streets of Calcutta. And she said, you know, when they, the orphans, you know, look up to me and I see their eyes, I, I see the face of Christ. I see, the eye, I see Christ looking out at me through their eyes. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's a beautiful statement. But you know what? Um, I can find Christ looking back out to me through those eyes too, right? And through those eyes right there, if they would just look at me, right? <laughs> you know, I can see Christ looking back at me through those eyes, you know, that my family and my friends and my coworkers, you know, we can find in the presence of the people with whom we interact every day, Christ looking back at us. And if we can learn how to, if we can learn how to um, live our lives that way, just think of how much, how much deeper our service to the people around us uh, might be. So here's another one. Periodically go up to the mountain for a recharge. You know, take time away. Go fishing. Go on the women's retreat. Go to the men's retreat. Get up in the morning. Open your Bible. Pray. Have a journal. You know, whatever it might be. But find some way to bring, to on purpose, um, go up to the mountain, so to speak, and spend intentional, focused time with Christ. Um, so, and then also do make sure that you work enjoyable activities uh, into, with your family and friends into your life, right? Don't just work, right? I have to, uh, this is important for me to say to myself. Remember, I'm preaching to myself, right? All work and no play makes John Clay Bangs a dull boy, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, so do find the time for those kind of things, Engage your spirit with God on a, on a daily basis. Now, you know how I know that God, that God knows that our, life, um, uh, our lives contain a mundane rhythm and that God wants to breathe life into, into the midst of those mundane rhythms? 
It's because um, I have read the book of Ecclesiastes. I really have. Even though my college English teacher told me that, that you're not supposed to do that until you're at least 30 years old. Um, so any of you who are younger, I, I caution you, don't read the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, because this is what you'll find there. This is chapter 5. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for people to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Sounds a little depressing, doesn't it? <laughs> during their toilsome labor that God has given them under the sun, for this is their lot. And note that uh, you know, Ecclesiastes actually does... In, uh, contain the words "eat, drink, and be merry," for tomorrow we die. Right? Which I, you know, I heard that it was Pirate Day in the youth group or Pirate Month in the youth group. That's usually what you you think pirates are going to say, right? You know, <laughs> it's not been a Christian mantra. Um, moreover, when God gives people wealth and possessions, and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot, and be happy in their toil. This is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Sometimes we think the gift of God is, you know, rescue me from my routine, right? Make life less mundane. But instead, the gift of God is that we can find satisfaction, right, and joy in the midst of it. And so I think that that's what this passage here is teaching us. How do we find satisfaction and joy in the midst of it? Um, not, how do we, not how do we change it. Um, so there's, a, the, there's a, a famous old book written by a guy named Brother Lawrence. Anybody ever heard of Brother Lawrence? So Brother Lawrence was a lay brother in a Carmelite monastery in, in Paris. Um, and so what is a Carmelite monastery? It was a decalced Carmelite monastery in Paris, which meant that everybody was barefoot, right? So basically, he, he lived a bunch of people who had taken off their shoes because this, the ground upon which they were standing was holy ground, and all their whole job every day was to pray and to seek God. They prayed, they sought God, they read Scripture, they spent four hours a day doing lect, practicing Lectio Divina, reading the Scripture and listening to God's Spirit speak to them. And what does Brother Lawrence do? His job is to cook for them, right? So his job is to cook for them. And at first he felt envious and left behind by God. Why can't I just pray all day long? Um, and so what he decided to do is he said, well, I'm going to make my cooking a prayer. You know, every time my knife breaks through a zucchini and comes clonking down on the, on the cutting board below, that's going to be a prayer, right? Every time I dump potatoes into the pot and feel the steam wafting up, that's going to be an act of worship to God. And he made his work into a prayer and is famous for this idea that, that our work can become a prayer. And um, so I was out at the, the garage of the house we are trying to sell presently out on Lake Joy, um, trying to paint the garage in the rain the other day, um, <laughs> which, you know, that's kind of a waste of time, it turns out. But um, <laughs> so... But I just decided that, I've decided from the beginning as we've decided to sell this house that it's not going to become a matter of anxiety for me, but it was kind of creeping up on me. So I just thought every brush stroke, a prayer, you know, every brush stroke, a prayer. I'm just going to worship God with my paintbrush, you know, as I, as I paint. And I think that we can do that. We can worship God with our 
paint brushes and with our knives and with our computer keyboards, right, and in our conversations with our coworkers, um, in the, in, on bike rides with our, with our families, right, these kind of things. Um, and so, so that's what I want to charge you with today. I want to charge you with that and say, see if you can find a way in the midst of life and your routine to let Christ break in, to let Christ break in, to mingle your fish with his fish and to allow your life to become a communion meal, to allow your life to become a communion meal where the fragrance of Christ is in your daily activity. Fragrance of Christ is in your daily activity. Imagine what it would be like um, if we found a way all to live this way. Imagine what it would be like. Can you imagine the, the testimony that we could have for Christ in our workplaces, right, if we approached our work? You know, the, the, the power of this congregation would be enhanced um, by each one of us going to our offices and, and looking into the eyes of our coworkers and seeing Christ there, serving them as we serve Christ, doing our work with diligence as an act of worship, you know, to him. You know, that, that we would be empowered to transform our community to a greater degree if we could learn to live like this. Don't you think? Do you think you can? We could do that. So um, let's pray. And um, you have a communion cup um, in, the back of your, in the back of your chair. And so we're going to move to communion now, uh, if we could. So um, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you understand. We know you understand, Lord God, uh, that our lives can become routine. Um, we know that you even feel it with us when we feel bored or depressed or cynical, that you're in those moments with us, Lord God, whether we're conscious of your presence or not. Lord, it's our desire that you would wake us up to the fact of your conscious presence in the midst of the routine, Lord, and you'd help us to rise up uh, away from that, Lord. That you, you would, you'd help us to lock eyes with Jesus. You'd help us to make the motions of our work uh, an act of prayer to you, Lord, that you would help us to see the face of Christ looking back at us uh, from our family members, Lord God, and that we would love them as we love you. We would love you by loving them, Lord. We ask, Father God, for you to breathe this grace into our lives because we need it. We can't, we can't do it, Lord. We lose track of it, but you can empower it, Lord. You can give us that gift from God that's spoken of in Ecclesiastes, and we desire, Lord God. We desire that gift, and we thank you that it's a gift, Lord, that it's not the outworking of our efforts, uh, but that it is truly a gift, Lord. And we thank you for the scene with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and the way that, that you entered into their routine moment, that Christ himself was revealed to them. Lord, reveal yourself to us in our daily life. Reveal yourself to us in our daily life, we pray, Lord God, that we would know that you're present, that we would be able to worship you because you're there, not as a distant God, but as God who comes alongside, the one who stands at the door and knocks, and if anyone would open, he would sup with them. Lord, we desire to sup with you, Lord, even in the midst of the, the daily. Even in the midst of the daily. And so, Lord, we think of the way that this passage ends with Jesus' hand.